Hi, and welcome back to Tavern Talks York, the D&D podcast that nobody's heard of. I'm Rowan. This is Alex. Hi. Alex is our secretary, which means his job is technically to talk to people. He's doing great at that so far. Yeah, and this is Kieran. Hey, I'm not as important. You're pretty important. <laughs> you're, like, you're in charge of all of the players. It's a pretty important part of D&D, the actual players. Otherwise, it's just creative writing. Yeah, I guess. So how are you guys doing today? <laughs> nah, not too bad. Yeah, all right, thanks. All right. Probably thinking too much about campaigns. But yeah, that's not going to be bad within the context of this discussion. <laughs> exactly. Because today we're going to be talking about starting a campaign on the DM side and the player's side and all the fun that comes with it. All three of us are starting campaigns soon. Two of us are DMing and all three of us are playing. I'm looking forward to it. It's always nice to be able to kind of explore a new character, like find out who the other players' characters are as well, and then kind of, yeah, just see what the DM has in store for you, really. I've noticed prepping that first session is probably the most intense part of any DM's job, though, because I've built the character for the campaign that I'm going to play in, and it was just, oh, I've got so many ideas I think I'm going to do this one this time. It's difficult because you don't really know what the hell the characters are doing. A lot of the time you're having to start planning it before you actually know what any one player is playing. So you've kind of got to build an engaging hook with no information. Yeah, I mean, on that sense, that's why session zeros are so good. Because it gives you an idea of what people are playing and how you think they're going to mesh up with each other. I think session zeros can definitely be really, really useful when you're starting a campaign for both DM and players. Like, it's a way that you can kind of communicate from DM to player, from player to player, et cetera, et cetera. I think when you're setting up a campaign, it's just the amount of work that you need to do beforehand. And a lot of the time it's kind of knowing yourself and your style and often that will get you placed actually pretty quickly and then it depends for you the dm what has like inspired the campaign i suppose is it a tone is it like a particular image that you have in your mind of like a combat or a scene and that's something that you want to try and bring out in the role play or take the players towards if you've got a more directed style and that kind of stuff but it it is always like a lot of prep and that first session can always feel a bit tense. What is it that you guys think is most important before you even get to the session zero as a DM and as a player? Honestly, I think having an idea of what you want your campaign to be overall. So before you can even think about the session zero or that first session, you need to have a rough idea of what it is you want from the game. So it's, mm. are you running a mystery? Are you running a hack and slash dungeon crawl type adventure or you're running essentially a series of linked fetch quests it's having the basic idea of what this campaign is going to end up being and whether it gets derailed or not at least you have that idea to come back to what about on the player end what's important to make sure that you bring to your session zero more than just a stat sheet i think bring a character that has personality more than anything i mean for me it's it's bringing yourself like openly and honestly as weirdly as that sounds like so 
bring yourself along, engage with what the DM's saying, engage with what the other players are saying, and essentially be open and honest to the ideas that are on the table and be willing to potentially have to move yourself if, if that's going to be the best thing for the game. Because in the session zero, what you're really talking about is the game and the campaign as a whole. So what you want to have had sorted out ideally is essentially, will this game work? And do I know what the DM and other players are trying to do? Like, at least roughly. Like, obviously, some players might want to keep secrets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But do I know, like, have I actually engaged with these other people that I'm going to be potentially sharing a lot of time with and essentially a collective creative writing experience with? Because if you're not going to gel like that, it's just not going to work. I think bringing a character along can be really, really useful. But I think bringing yourself along is more important than bringing a character, especially if you're the sort of player that knows how to make characters really quickly. Like you can essentially come along and just go, cool, I've got a couple of ideas of maybe themes, but these themes could be attached to pretty much any character in terms of pure mechanics within the game because the character traits that I want to put across are are things about the person, not things about whether I stab things in the dark or cast fire out of my ass. And so it's one of those ones where I think bringing yourself is more important. What do you think, Rowan? Because you haven't really spoken much. I think I agree with you on all your points, but um, one of the ones I quite like is if you make sure that you have an idea of how your character got there, in a sense. It's obviously they need to mesh well, but I found that It doesn't always matter about the mechanics as long as your character has a purpose. It doesn't have to be that it's necessarily they're on this magical quest, but just why the hell did they turn up? Why are they talking to these people? Would they talk to these people? And making sure that what you have preps in that way. And to make sure that you've engaged with your DM about any more esoteric things that you want to bring to the table. Yeah, on that, I think a good kind of almost before anything else is at least have an idea of why your character wants to travel with people. It's all well and good bringing a pre-made character or making one up on the spot, but if you end up bringing someone who's this lone wolf, always the edgy, kind of on their own in the corner, in the shadows type character, why are they traveling with people? Mm. Why wouldn't they just stay on their own if they want to live like that? So it's... I think bringing yourself is vitally important, but bringing a reason your character wants to be in a party is almost as important. Once again, the podcast showing their general hatred of lone wolves in a campaign. Yeah, They're not fun to DM for either, is the thing. That is very true. But for helping with those sorts of things, hopefully the DM will have essentially brought along some stuff to prep to help you with that sort of thing because there are also moments where for instance like the campaign that i'm designing in the background at the minute like is specifically you guys will not know each other i don't care if you don't want to be with each other like (laughs) i like that will be part of the role play and so essentially don't worry about it at that point, like you're asking quite a lot of the DM though. And so that's sometimes one of the things that you also have to think about when you're starting a new campaign is how much am I asking? Because on some levels, I'm like, I'm asking my players to essentially 
trust me. Just trust me. I've got an idea. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing, but it's going to sound a bit weird at first. I think going back to what Key was saying earlier, I think you have to have a pretty good idea as a DM of at least roughly what you're doing. And so I like to have essentially my overview document, like which is a general campaign overview, and that will be very broad. And then I will have my player introduction document that will be separate to that. Some of the stuff from that will be in the player intro. Some of it won't because I'm just not telling them some stuff at the minute, <laughs> like, but I need to have a record of it. And then also I actually like to have my first, call it what you would like, arc, act, whatever you want, like essentially like the introductory part essentially done and down, particularly because I prefer using milestones it means that what I can essentially do is plan out my arc structure or my act structure essentially in milestones. I can just have it there planned out and essentially ready to go. So it, that also means that A, I will have a pretty good idea of where I want the players to be pretty soon, but also if they bring something that just really isn't going to work, I can kind of either go cool, it might work long time, but we might have to put that on the back burner for now, or mm. it might have to be something that I prefer you to kind of work on more via play rather than having it as something as pronounced at the minute or just saying like, I'm sorry, but it's probably just not going to work. The starting a campaign is always really, really difficult for a DM because there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, Definitely. Like, yeah, it's oh. something I'm realising after running a module for nearly a year now is going into a homebrew world where there's not as much structure. It's just, ah, so much. What if I'm forgetting something? <laughs> on the other hand, you have the chance to actually do things on the fly a lot more. I much prefer the creative freedom in a homebrew world over a module. Yeah, I mean, I quite like my general style as a DM is to rule of cool kind of improv but i still like a bit of background structure to go with it so it's just this is going to need to be done how are you going to do it and that's where i kind of just open it up to the, the party a bit more and try and give them freedom to do it as they think they need to or they want to i generally quite like having a pretty structured and directed essentially first arc Essentially, like, it's not really arc one, it's arc intro or prologue, essentially. And that's just to, so that it gives me a bit of space and time to sort out things in the background. It also gives my players a bit of time to kind of get their feet on the ground in those characters and actually get running. And it gives me time to essentially change stuff before we're overly committed to anything. It's just a way of, just kind of getting everything going, kind of like giving it a push and then letting it roll. It's also one of those things where true open world is really, really difficult. It creates a lot of work, like a lot of work. So I will generally like to have what is kind of like a, a fake open world or a semi-open world, like more like you would be used to in a video game where it's like, okay, so this is the intro. This is the starting area. And then what I'll actually have is two to three arcs that I can then just place at the end of the intro, depending on what happens, or place all of them there. And then the players will decide which, which way they go. 
And most of my arts will be, when I design them, they will almost be just in bullet pointed milestones. So mm-hmm. I split milestones in my head into minor and major. It also means that what I've got there is I've then got this structure, but then from milestone to milestone, it doesn't really matter how the players get there. Like they can do whatever the hell they, they, that they want, or they can completely skip some. That kind of stuff doesn't really matter. It just helps me keep track of what's going on and give more of a sense of a cohesive narrative and as if I haven't lost control whilst Hmm. trying to kind of give the players the space to just do what they want to do, essentially. And also being able to cheat in the background because the players don't know which arc I'm going to slap in next. (laughs) So it's one of those ones where it kind of gives me freedom whilst also giving me structure. Kind of the freedom of a create of a choose your own adventure book. It's kind of pre-programmed which way you're going to go, but you still get to make the choices. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing something similar in one of the campaigns I'm currently running. So the party have just finished what is essentially the prologue to hell, and it's kind of opened up after this vision where they've been shown three figures, and they essentially have to go to one of them to find out where the MacGuffin is. But then there's steps between, and it's kind of a mix between open world and set structure, because they have three routes they can take with it, depending on who they decide to track down. But you have mentioned that your little mini-module also has a, if they choose to go to this one, then something's going to go wrong, so they have to go to this one. If they choose to go to that one first, something's going to go wrong, so they have to go to that one. That's more of an advisory for it, of... The heart of the story of this is about these characters from the story that you're slowly being drip-fed. And the module's just like, well, we want the characters to meet as many of these individuals as we can. So, I mean, go for it. Make them meet at least two. They're going to meet one by nature of it. So, who knows? On some level, it's a way of essentially doing semi-open world. So you have that kind of feeling of it being open whilst not actually having to potentially come up with absolutely everything that could ever happen ever. Also, it's one of those, it's it's not really a player thing, it's just a human thing, but a lot of people don't actually tend to massively go outside the bounds of what is pretty obviously in front of them as far as options go. So it means that like you can kind of give the feeling that a campaign wants by kind of presenting enough options that are diverse enough rather than every option that are then potentially quite shallow because you Mm. haven't been able to do the work on them. But that's, again, that's, that's what a lot of video games will do. You can't actually genuinely come up with an entire universe that will just do its own thing. Even really, really open games like Kenshi and this kind of thing, that's still programmed within certain bounds and so yeah like i think it's just a way it's a way of kind of trying to provide an open feeling without being overwhelmed particularly when you're trying to start a campaign and it feels that like if i'm going to start and put them in this world i kind of have to know what everything is doing and that's almost impossible to keep in mind or impossible to keep in mind to kind of the depth and the quality that you might want Going back to the idea of milestones, one uh, method I'm thinking of playing around with is basically there is a 
background story that the players might not know about until the very end of the first arc that progresses whenever they meet a certain milestone. It's kind of like, uh, how to best put it, like scripted events in a video game where the big bad is prepping the evil army. But you can ignore that and go do all the, the side quests, like fetching the farmer's cabbages from the field or dealing with the skeleton thing in the cave. And it won't take away from this big plot in the background because I still want the characters to be able to see the effect of it, if only by fifth level knock-ons down the road. Like, so it's kind of giving them the freedom to play around a bit more, but still have the consequences of, yeah, this is happening in the background. If you don't clock on, it's going to happen. That's one of the things that I'll use fronts and clocks for. So, like, it's why the other thing when I'm getting ready for a campaign is considering what fronts and clocks I want there from the get-go. And if there are any fronts and clocks at all, right at the beginning of a game, occasionally you might have some. Also, some of them might be known to the players, some of them might not be, et cetera, et cetera. But I like to have those because if it is one that's relevant at the beginning, and it is something that the players should probably know, it's good for them to know that because it can give them a feeling of immediacy and the motivation to actually do some stuff, essentially. Alex, can... would you like to explain for anybody who's listening that doesn't know what fronts and clocks are, what they actually are in d and I cannot remember where the term originally comes from, but fronts and clocks are essentially a way of measuring the progression of something. So you will create a front, which is like repay my loan. And then the clock will have a number of kind of uh, sections to it. So it could be like a four clock or a six clock or a 12 clock or whatever you want. And every time a certain trigger is met, you fill in a part of it. And then when the entire thing is filled in and the clock is complete, essentially the outcome of the front occurs come what may. So, for instance, if it's like we have to repay our loan every month of this much money and it's in a world where there are four weeks to a month, it's nice and easy. We don't like, so literally I will have a four-place clock and so it just measures every week that goes by and it's a way of kind of measuring time passing in the background but also like with a loan repayment, like it's a way of kind of giving the players some sort of feedback because what D&D can be really bad at is feedback for players. And so it's, it's a way of giving them some sort of feedback. And also if the clock's really relevant or this kind of thing, it can also give them that sense of, oh shit, we really have to do something. <laughs> like we seriously <laughs> have to do something. Like the world is going to end in 13 hours because we're Flash Gordon and I can slowly see this clock filling up, etc., etc. But yeah, like there are fronts and clocks are essential way of just measuring like measuring the progress of some sort of activity and essentially setting a time for the clock to go off. Back to more pre-campaign prep things. Alex, you're kind of notorious for having the 17,000 page documents at the start of a campaign. How important do you think pre-campaign law is? So it is as important as you want it to be. I know that is a really, really vague answer. So for me, some campaigns, I like to give a lot of information. Like, so particularly if the 
if I have a campaign where I want my players to feel like they are somebody that is in this world and from this world and knows what's going on, I will want my players to have as much information as possible so that they can, if they wish to, they can take on this information and they can kind of connect with their characters and where their character would be and feel. Whereas at other times, like if I want the characters to kind of feel as if they're a bit new at this or, or a bit young or don't know what's going on exactly, then I will kind of just deliberately give them less. <laughs> like, um, because it's like, for me, it's, it's essentially me metagaming, metagaming. Mm. Like, so like, um, and to kind of help my players not immerse them it's to essentially like almost help them with character acting so i've read some stuff on acting technique and advice for directors and some of it is just like literally this person's a character actor they really get in character i literally just don't tell them what's going to happen they, mm. they know what the lines are but they just do not know what's going to happen until it happens and that's to kind of help them be able to be in a more similar state of mind to the character so if that's the kind of feel that I'm going for, I will just tell them less. But in the background, I will probably still have many, many, many words that I can kind of drop in when I need to. Mm. But yeah, it, it's why it, it really does depend. Also, I, I think I hate talking about style all the goddamn time, but if you have a more open world style, you will need to do more of it. It will help you so much with just being able to kind of go cool i know what this is i know what that is so if they go over there i can just refer to this stuff it's there it's already done also if you've got an ad-libbing style it can really help because you're just doing stuff off the cuff essentially but you're doing stuff off the cuff within a kind of context that you already kind of know so for instance like in in Feralia, if you asked me to run a game in Feralia in three hours time i could just because I, I know what that place is like. There's a lot of lore going on. Like, there's a lot of stuff there. So I, I could just kind of go, okay, we've got four of us. I'll drop you there. Let's go. Whereas in other places, I, I just couldn't do that. I could not ad-lib a campaign off the top of my head in Iman or many other places. I think it does also depend on like what your style is and what you're aiming to do. Yeah, that's fair. Kieran, same question to you. I mean, I'm the type of person who loves law building and world building and creative writing and that sort of thing. So for me, it's less important because I've got these massive ideas in my head of things I can go, oh, nice, I can throw this there, nice and simple, and it will just kind of be added to the law as I go. But if it's something where it's kind of a long form campaign. I think it's good to have certain aspects of law kind of built into what you're planning so that you can go, okay, I can use foreshadowing here. I can do something about this here. They might come across this as they travel. I think it depends on the type of campaign or the type of game I'm trying to run. So one shots, I can improv a basic structure and kind of throw you in it within a couple hours of being told I'm going to run something. But with a campaign, I like to have a bit more lore and background, especially if I'm planning on giving the actual players fairly little information, because it means I have a lot that I can go, 
They skipped over that. Next village over. <laughs> oh, they have this problem. Hmm. <laughs> Moving things that the players don't know exist is, <laughs> a, is a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. Because it's not like they're going to realise it. It's... it's your world. They'll never know. <laughs> Sometimes it also, again, not to talk to, about style again, there are certain ways of doing it where it's just like, literally, I want to create the world with my players. Mm. So at that point, it's a really weird one where you will have to have some sort of an idea. But at that point, it can actually be nice to just not have an idea. You mm. kind of come along just going, right, okay, this is a world that used to be ruled by giants. Let's go. I want to know where you're from. I'm not going to tell you. I want to know where you are from. Tell me about it and this kind of stuff. But that starts to get towards, I know this is a D&D podcast, but that gets towards playing a style of game that D&D really isn't based towards. Like, if you want to do that sort of thing, find a different role-playing game, essentially. <laughs> Other ones are available. Not that we are allowed to endorse it as D&D Society, all about D&D, talking D&D. <laughs> what about from the player's aspect? When you get your DM's lore document, how much do you read it and how much do you skim it for the stats and magic items? I will consume the entire thing. <laughs> I will read it once in 15 minutes as detailed as I can and then go through it three or four more times thinking, what niche bit of lore in here can I introduce to my characters? <laughs> so I've got a, a bad habit of trying to mix whatever lore the DM has given me with a certain character trait that I'm trying to build. So in one campaign, that sort of kind of domain, sort of like, right, yoink, I'm now going to build a character, they're going to be a paladin, and they're going to represent kind of the wrathful side of light, the, the burning ambition type thing. And I'm going to roll with that and see where it goes. I like to consume lore. <laughs> I think it goes back to my knack for, for world building, where even if I don't use it, I just love having it. I love to consume it. Like I will generally be looking for what are the guilds like? Give me some good guilds because I do love a rogue. Um, mm. It will be like, tell me who I'm supposed to know if I'm supposed to be nicking stuff because if I'm nicking stuff, I'm definitely selling it and I'm not doing that by myself. And so I will, yeah, I'll generally be looking at the guilds. I'll be looking for, I'm interested to see what the political structure is like. So I'm always interested in that because... I'm interested to see how my character would feel as if they're going to fit into that or mm. if they don't fit into that and how they, essentially how they will feel in that world. So for instance, if I want to play a rebel, I need something to rebel against unless I mm. want to be a 13 year old. So <laughs> it's one of those things where like, so I, I will want to know what's going on there. I also love a bard. So if I'm going to bullshit because I almost definitely will bullshit if I'm a bard. I want to actually bullshit in character. So it's one of those things where I, I will be looking through for all of the things that will help to kind of place my character and things that I can potentially kind of use in world in character. It's why I will tend to quite like the history skill if I can get it because it gives me an excuse to know some of this stuff. And so, yeah, like, I will I will consume it pretty wholeheartedly. I want to engage with what the DM has given me and place my character firmly in that world. 
And so like, like you do as an actual real life person, like mm. use your knowledge and the world around you to your advantage to survive essentially. And so knowing about all of that lore is, is definitely part of that. Well, how about you, Ro? I also devour lore documents. I love to know about the gods, about the culture. I want to know, again, a lot like Kieran, I like to know the little details that I can build out in his character, especially if you have something, a character that's going to be more religion-based. Pick a god. I want to know what their sigil is. I want to know what their color is. I want to know how they're related to every other god. And when it comes to places, what was this place a thousand years ago? What's the history? Are there any landmarks that I should be paying attention to? It's what would my character have given enough of a shit about to have learnt on their own is often yeah. how I want to do it. I think that's definitely an important part of it. It's part of locating your character and locating your character like actually within this space and as part of this world. Also, it's always just really interesting to see where somebody else's mind has gone. Mm. Like They can be really, really interesting and insightful documents where you're just going, oh, okay, like... Um, this is interesting. You do seem to really, really like Vikings or really, really hate them. I, I can't really tell. <laughs> I like worlds where there's either a multitude of different gods and a lot of things to choose from, but I've barely ever played in a world where it's, they might be animistic in gods, where it's instead of these set deities, it's more nature spirits or totem spirits or things like that or even a monotheistic world, because we live in a monotheistic type world where people are trying to argue which the real monotheistic religion is. Let's not get into that, though. (laughs) (laughs) But playing in a world where you know that this monotheistic religion is unfathomably true as the gods has interacted or has existed as a god made flesh in the past or has been deified for something it's an interesting change to different characters of how you play them in basically any other campaign i think the gods are always really interesting and important in people's campaigns because they're a strong way of kind of indicating how the emotional environment of this society is working so if it is a monotheistic society how is this society dealing with this? Like, is there just one monolith of, uh, of a religion or has this religion within itself split into various different f- factions as they kind of interpret what the God has done? Like the God made a river by peeing from <laughs> 50,000 feet. Like, um, well, some of us think that this means water is very important. The other ones of us mean we think we should piss in water. That's one of our most, in- like, like, <laughs> And this kind of stuff, like, so all of that sort of stuff is really, really interesting just to see kind of like how that works. But then if it's in a monotheist, uh, like if it's in a, like a more polytheistic kind of environment, that will say something very, very important as well. Like, um, and also how are these religious institutions structured? So is it more Abrahamic where it's just like there is quite a strong centralized form of institutionalized religion? Or is it something that is far more kind of diverse and local? So like, and this isn't to have a go at Abrahamic religions. Like, so like, are some of those essentially Quakers where it's, it's actually like the same religion, but on a very, very local 
personal level? And do both of them exist? And how do they get on? All of this stuff is is really, really interesting and can just help to to locate your character and kind of, and on some levels, that is the best way of de- yeah, describing the emotion, the emotional state of this society. You can say as much as you like about, well, an artificer can make a metal dog. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Like, but it doesn't really tell me anything about the people and their, their emotions. What does is how do they like to drink? What religions do they have? And how do they like to fuck? Essentially, this will tell me more about the society than anything kind of purely mechanical. So again, like if you've got a steampunk society, that's cool. But that kind of tells me about the tech level. It doesn't Mm. tell me about what people feel about this technology. Like if it's had an impact, like have the god or gods changed from being something that's non-techy to now they are shown in illustrated manuscripts with goggles on their head. Mm. Like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's the best way of getting probably the feeling of a setting across. I feel like gods could have a podcast of their own, really. I feel like it's such <laughs> oh, an yeah. important part of world building, at least for me. It's the fact that it's such a big part of the world as a whole because there are several classes that depend on the existence of these greater entities. And it's just a great way of exploring how this world is, how do these gods affect the creation myths, for example, or even just the form of theology that this world has taken. And is that belief giving life to the gods or is it the gods who sparks this belief to feed themselves sort of thing? There's lots of ways to, to to look at it and to think about it. And there's so many ways that that has knock-on effects, especially when you think about how the characters are going to react to it. I think another thing is, um, as you touched on with creation myths, you can find out a lot about culture with its creation myth. In D&D, where it can be true, is it how it actually happened or is it a romanticized version of it? Has the true history been expunged by either the people or the gods or is it upfront for everybody to know? Is it the sculpted of clay or is it they sat back and watched, ever- watched creatures evolve for thousands of years and went, I want that one? How exactly did this culture develop before culture? Yeah, I, I think creation myths, whether connected directly with gods or not, are up there with gods in terms of kind of helping you locate what this world is going to be like so for instance i've had a world before where essentially the world was made by mistake by a god that didn't like it and want to do have anything to do with it but that fundamentally changed how essentially everybody in the world felt about their creation like and how they felt about God is like, it's one of those things where it's like, well, I mean, they, yeah, they are the creator, I suppose. And so, yeah, like, uh, I think they are crucially important. They're also just fun to write. Mm. Oh, yeah. From yeah. not even a D&D perspective, just writing a creation myth of this fantasy world is some of the most fun you can have with world building because you can go as wild as you like and it yeah. will be true. It's stepping away from the more fun parts of world building and lore. When you're starting a game, being it looking for one or picking players as a DM, what do you look for? I'd say play style. I think you can have the perfect group, but if they expect a certain or enjoy a certain play style, it 
often just falls apart if it doesn't mash up with what you're running or how you typically kind of default to. There's that element of compatibility. It's great to play with your mates and stuff like that. But if they like the idea of telling this story and you just want this creative exercise of this weird adventure, it can kind of conflict and either take you out of the game or just kind of put you off in general. So I think that's probably personally the biggest thing I'd look for is what they're expecting out of it and how they like to play the game. I think style is really important. That is definitely a major consideration. I will also be looking at what the DM is essentially saying their campaign is. So, for instance, I would love to play an evil campaign, but there are evil campaigns and evil campaigns. So Mm. I would be definitely looking for what the DM is actually kind of saying that they are wanting to try to do and what their essentially intention for the campaign is. Along with that, it it will also be style. So if it's just going to be essentially a dungeon delve for 20 levels, that will probably send me a bit nuts like after a little while there's only so much character development that can happen whilst underground hitting things so like it's one of those ones where i'll definitely be looking for those sorts of things also i will just be on some levels and this might be slightly nasty like i will just be looking for which other players are involved do i know these people already do i not know these people what are they saying about the game because if I can do, I would prefer to not walk away at session zero. So it's one of those ones where like, if there is something that is obvious and would make me walk away at session zero, rather than giving it a chance kind of thing, then I will try to find that if possible before I even start. Essentially. Mm. For me, often it's hearing about how enthusiastic the DM is for their world as a player. I like when the DM's pitching and they just look a little bit nervous, but they start to get on that little roll with that thing they really like about their world. And it just flows. Someone who's that enthusiastic about their world, I tend to be really into, but I'm also a bit wary with that because sometimes that goes more towards the scripted, created writing rather than playing D&D. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And then, yeah, a huge thing for it is players. I've had some good players I've played with. I've had some bad players and if I catch the vibe that someone's I'm not going to mesh with, it doesn't matter if I like the campaign or not, it's not going to work. On the other hand, if I'm not 100% certain about the campaign, but I know a couple of spectacular players who are going to be in there, I'm much more likely to dive in because with the right set of players, they can feed the DM so that it all just becomes this wonderful thing of joy or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I get that. Like Anything can be good with friends hmm. kind of thing. And so, yeah, no, I, I can definitely get that. I might suggest we split uh, for about 10 minutes. No time at all for those people watching. And then we will come back very soon. Welcome back. No time at all has passed for you. But once again, we had a short break. Whilst we're in the middle of the podcast, it's a good time to plug society events. So no idea when this is going to come out, but probably it will be before the next charity live stream. The last one went spectacularly. We raised over 150 quid for the Samaritans. And this one, the charity is being chosen by the winner of the Creator Monster competition. The winner should be announced 
the week of, for those of you in the university, week seven, the weekend. So probably all already been and gone by now. But the charity live stream will be ran on Wednesday, the 2nd of December. It will be featuring many of us here. So hopefully, come join. We'll have fun. We'll cause chaos and maybe I can convince the DM to bring Dave back, my kidnapped kobold. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It should be a good event. Mm. I'm still thinking of what to bring. Yeah, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. Honestly, For those I've of you who don't mean. know Kieran, his favourite thing to do is to, right up until the day a character is due to be played, every single day, he'll come up with a brand new character. And if you're the DM, he will show you the character, be like, is this cool? The next day. What about this one? The next day. What about this one? I know he has 30 AC. It's fine. Oh, that reminds me. I might bring my Eldritch Knight Forge Cleric. No, 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 you're, no. You're, you're not the DM. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> so what if they have 28 AC at level four? He has been trying to let me bring this one into my campaign for like two days. I am dying. It'll be fine for a charity live stream. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Gives me an excuse to do something stupid. So Yes, that is true. Gotta love a gimmicky character with no consequences. As long as I don't make saving throws, I will never die. So, from our Discord, we have a couple questions. Number one, from Charles. He says that he's always curious to see what kind of subclasses people want to see. So, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I quite want to see probably Warlock-based, something that casts using a non-conventional stat. So this is something uh, me and you, Rowan, talked about a fair bit before. It's the idea of, in previous editions, I think it was in 3.5, Warlocks used Constitution as their casting mod. Or was it 4th? 4th edition doesn't exist. (laughs) 4th edition does not exist. (laughs) But the idea of a non-conventional casting stat and the kind of ramifications that would have when you build the character. I'd love the idea of having someone who casts magic, but because of the strain it puts on them, they use their constitution to see how much magic they can channel. Yeah, I think that would be cool, like doing something slightly different. I always like the idea of non-conventional casters. I've been thinking about, Key, you asked me to let something or another be um, wisdom. It was a clockwork sorcerer who used wisdom. It was also the other one, Wild Magic, for some reason. And I just, it did not make sense. But on the other hand, Charisma doesn't always fully make sense for um, Sorcery either. But Constitution, having to fight back this magic that's trying to burst out of you so you can control it, makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Yeah, I think I made the point of defending wisdom for that sort of thing. It's where Constitution, you're having to your body is fighting against it. If it's a wisdom cast for it, it's more your mind is trying to retain focus to get this energy of the spell to be projected without going haywire. You're trying to maintain focus on it. What about you, Alex? Is there any sort of subclass that doesn't exist that you'd like to see? Um, that doesn't exist. Like, so I'd quite like some sort of Eidolon type subclass for wizard i think that could be quite fun but it's then it runs into the problems of essentially 5e and having 
other characters or character type things with you. I'd quite like to see an Eidolon. I'd quite like to see essentially a proper, essentially everything in Artificer done better. Yeah, um, same. Yeah. Like, like, I'd love to see essentially a kind of proper big gun user. I'd love to see a subclass where you kind of actually make a mechanical friend. I think that would be really, really nice. Like a lot of Artificer, it just feels a little bit kind of like it's not really doing anything as a class and a subclass. Like yeah. you can do a lot whilst not really doing anything. And so, yeah, like I think that that could be quite nice. And so, yeah, like there are those ones. The other ones are just, I would love to, and again, it's lots of pet type things. I would love to see essentially a different form of Circle of the Shepherd, where mm. essentially you are a druid animal drone controller. So essentially you have a decent amount of pets, like so more than one, but not just kind of summoned so that they just do what a stat block does. And essentially you are kind of a druid drone controller, pretty much mm. like... So it's something that I've tried to do in the past by essentially combining classes together in terms of like, okay, taking a, got a bit of ranger and then I'm getting at least 10 levels of bard so I can like magical secrets into greater fine steed. And then I'll have three levels in warlock so that I can take pact of the chain with voice <laughs> of the chain alike. So it's, it's the kind of thing that I've tried to do but it doesn't really work very well. Like so, mm -hmm. and Circle of the Shepherd for me is a bit boring, really. And I would like to be an actual shepherd. And I suppose all of this comes back to just the central thing of like additional characters are not done particularly well in mm. 5e. Like yeah. so a lot of them feel just like abilities rather than sidekicks, essentially. Mm. They tried to implement a psychic rule type things didn't they but i've never seen them used where it wasn't basically just an extra stat block yeah i think we were all discussing this before i think other editions of DD &D and pathfinder have done pets in a much more tangible way and mm. i find familiars quite underwhelming because you can't have a personality really in a creature that's entirely bound to you it's technically a summoned face spirit but i've never seen anyone have their familiar played like a face spirit. It's just a creature that they maybe will feed to give it a personality. But that's about as far as that tends to go, which is always mm. really unfortunate. One thing I would quite like to see, and this is more of a revision than a new subclass, but it's a different form of Hexblade. Mm. Where it's... Because Hexblade, I've only really seen it as like a dip into the class because all of its other abilities are kind of estranged from the concept of it. You have this awesome weapon that you use your charisma, your spellcasting to wield like a permanent shillelagh, but then you get the ability to raise spirits of things you kill and other abilities that don't really line up with the theme of the class. It feels quite... It feels like the thematics of Hexblade have been quite skewed in different directions. 
So even if it's not a warlock thing, if it's something like a monk, where instead of the way of the Kensai, where it's they have this particular weapon they're really good with, it's more they actively channel key through a set weapon and get abilities that aren't just, I can use my punching monk dice instead of the weapon dice. It's subtle changes or revisions to it to make it feel more thematically concrete. I personally would just, like Alex said, I'd like an overhaul of Artificer entirely. I really like the idea of the class, but every time I play it, it feels really flat. It feels lackluster. It feels like you're not really ever good at one thing, and you're not really good at a lot of things. There's specific scenarios where you can be quite useful, but that's often more flavor than actual mechanics. And Mm. I love my flavor, but it always just feels a bit eh. And for something that is such a cool concept. Yeah, it feels like a diluted version of Blade Singing Wizard who can make magic items. Mm. There doesn't feel like this uniqueness to it. Even though the idea and flavor of the the class itself is amazing to, to try and play through, I found when I play uh, Strake, my armorer artificer, it always defaults to I'm either shooting stuff or punching stuff, and that depends on a choice I made this morning. I have 20 intelligence. I am the single most intelligent non-aberration or undead that can exist probably in this continent at the minute. But my default in battle isn't these incredible tactical plays. It's just pew pew, punch punch. It's not dead yet. Pew pew, punch punch. I also find that the infusions can be quite lackluster. And the item creation, you kind of have to hunt down the rules. And in the original release, it's just infeasible to make it. Xanathar's release for magic item creation is pretty cool. But I feel like if we could just have like side by side the artificer and how the artificer specifically creates items, it would just make a bit more depth to it all. Because the artificer, they've lost out on a lot of the spell casting that wizards have. They should get their magic items. Yeah, I mean, they kind of have that with their replicate magic item infusion, but without some kind of homebrew modification where, unless it requires attunement, it disappears if you decide to change infusion when you level up. It doesn't have that, you are making this thing, it is going to be useful in some manner. Instead, you kind of get, you've made this thing. You're going to have it for a day. Yeah, it's completely useless tomorrow. Like, what's the point of a bag of holding that's temporary? <laughs> you know, you got a bag of holding to hold your shit. It can hold everything. Uh, but tomorrow it's just a random satchel. It kind of goes back to essentially the, a similar sort of problem. Yeah, because I don't like those infusions. They feel like I'm essentially, I should be making stuff and I'm wasting infusions on kind of temporarily making stuff. But mm-hmm. it kind of comes back to a similar problem as the pets, where essentially a lot of stuff in 5e, they don't want to give you permanent power. It just has a similar feeling to, to that, where it's just like, we want to give you the ability to do something, not actually being able to do it kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so, yeah, it's it's a bit weird. 
it's just a class I think that could benefit from a an overhaul, but also just yeah some some different subclasses to make me want to actually play it all the way through. I mean, I think even if they just change how they make magic items, because I never understand how someone whose entire profession it is to create these magic items can't make one that sticks. Yeah, and they can only make something properly half as quickly as Pete, the nine intelligence cleric, because he has spellcasting, so he can do it. Mm. Yeah, it's just all very lackluster. It kind of feels like they've, in order to avoid power creep, they don't give you permanent power, but that doesn't really work because power creep is entirely unavoidable in any system. Yeah, it's even with some releases that are coming up in Tasha's, thing like Mind Thrust kind of comes to mind where it's, It's a fairly low-level spell. These classes can get it. If they fail the save, they take damage and can only do a movement action, their action, or their bonus action, and no reactions until your next turn. For a low-level spell slot, you completely shut down an enemy because they either need to run the hell away from something to recharge or try and stand their ground and cast a final spell before they get mauled by your melee character sidekicks, your your fellow adventurers. And yet, on the other hand, the Artificer can't even make a wand of smiles that lasts more than a day. I kind of feel sorry for him. I play an Artificer in Kieran's campaign, and I love the character. We've had to rework a lot of the mechanics to make it feel comparable to the other PCs because it just falls behind in so many regards. I was going to be a bad man and essentially talk about a different subclass, so I do not do mean it. to derail. So, like, it was just key said earlier about like tactical choices. Like, one thing I would love to see is essentially an overt warlord fighter. So not like not just a battle master, somebody who literally is kind of their job to literally stand there and give up their attacks every turn in order to kind of help boost the performance of mm. the other characters. Like, because again, it's one of those ones that you can kind of do by kind of comboing bard with rogue mastermind and various other combos that you can kind of get to do it. But I would like to just see essentially like a specialized subclass where it's like, this is my thing and I do not have to be a music wizard to do it. Like (laughs) I can do it just because I know battle. Like I know battle, I know war, and I am here to essentially shout pretty much. You could even have some of it coming off of one of their mental stats a bit like either link it to wisdom some bits of it to like wisdom or charisma you could even use a battle mastery type kind of basis in terms of like they have commands instead of maneuvers and they have like x amount however many you want like they have x amount every short rest and this kind of thing like i would like to see essentially a warlord just because i like I quite like playing a support fighter. I quite like playing support and a bit of control, potentially. I love Goading Strike, just so I can go in there and kind of have an effect on the combat that isn't just doing damage. And so, yeah, I I would love to see 
some sort of a of a warlord essentially the game's kind of got tank probably as good as it's going to get tank in terms of like cavalier or ancestral guardian barbarian in terms of just slapping things marking them and giving them disadvantage Mm. on anything that isn't you you could start doing like so this is another one either as a barbarian or a fighter would be doing an actual taunt or control fighter in some Mm. way which weirdly almost a bit more like panache Mm. kind of thing so somewhere around there but that might not need a new subclass in one of those it might just be kind of changing one of ancestral guardian or cavalier to essentially have slightly different mechanics from each other in terms of how they want to affect and try to control that combat because i think it's one of the things that's missing so as a dm there is the eternal argument of like does my intelligent individual slap the thing in front of me because it's hurting me or does it slap the thing that's actually more dangerous in the back that is pooping fire out of its fingers <laughs> like and a lot of the time it's just like well yeah i'm gonna slap that thing that's shooting fire out of my fingers and so it's one of those ones where having something where you can actually control some of the movement of combat as a frontline fighter outside of essentially the sentinel feet would be really really nice and so i think those are the two of the two of the ones that i think are missing i'd like to bring up just very quickly how broken the sentinel feet is i love it <laughs> uh i love it my little gnome angry boy can make a tarasque freeze because he <laughs> bopped him on the leg it's Great. I I just I don't get how that became a thing that they thought would make sense, but it did, I, and now yeah, it's a thing. I just I don't think they considered the basically the size implications of it because it's easy if you're fighting a lich to go sentinel feet. He ain't moving because I've when I hit him I hooked my sword. I don't know in between his rib cage so he can't move forwards. I'm pulling him back. But as soon as it gets to things like huge sized creatures, it's how are you, Mr. 18 Strength Fighter, stopping this Goliath of an entity from just pulling you away? <laughs> yeah, I think there were definitely like little changes you could make to it in terms of like literally it only works on things that are one size bigger than you at max. It's also my swashbuckling rogue battlemaster fighter with sentinel so i've got riposte and sentinel the amount of times i can just create reaction attacks where i can use my sneak attack again it just becomes a bit nasty really and so yeah like sentinel is a bit broken but then again like a few of the feats are a bit broken i mean what would be the fun if they weren't really Gotta have a few things to throw at your DM without telling them what exactly it does so they can come back three sessions later going what did you do to me yeah, yeah, there are a couple. Uh, yeah, there are a couple of feats. There are also a couple of magic items. You have when the DM doesn't know what illusionist braces do, and then <laughs> start just kicking out cantrips with your bonus action every goddamn turn. She'd probably say, Dungeons and Dragons Society does not endorse trying to sneak overpowered magic items or feet past your DM. Please be honest with your DM. Unless it's in the basic rules, in which case, go for it. I don't care if it's technically in the rules. If your thing is coming in with 30 AC and disadvantage on any attempt to hit them, no. Just wait until they hit Stop level it. 7, they get spirit shrouds. 
If you do manage to hit me, you take damage as well, mate. <laughs> in general, just don't try and cheese characters to play in a real campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's all well and good if, some, if it's something like a one-shot where you want to play this ridiculously niche character with absurd saving throws but not much else because it's a one-off thing but yeah be nice to your dm (laughs) they hold all the power rocks can fall (laughs) every time i complain to my dad about players being dicks he's just like just strike them with lightning that's what we did back in my day yeah, there is always the angry god route. <laughs> uh, um, you've, you've magically contracted syphilis. Um, <laughs> In my last session with my family, they all decided, because they have pet mountain goats that they can ride, because it's a lot of mountainous <laughs> terrain. Great idea on my part. They are more precious over them than they are the small child that they had put in their service for a while. Um, ah, players. Yeah. But they decided... Oh, that was in the when middle- it contracted the virus. <laughs> oh, shush. Uh, we're not talking uh, about the fact that I accidentally had a coronavirus allegory in my campaign. Anyway, they had these goats, and in the middle of combat, they realised the thing in Roll20 when you can set yourself to talk as any character that you control. So they started <laughs> having a conversation as the goats pause in combat. So I said, the next person to talk as a goat is taking an attack from this high-level enemy. Every single one of them chose to talk as a goat. One of them got downed by the attack, and they continued anyway. you got to love players. They will always do the thing that you tell them not to do. (laughs) I was part of that. Yes, yes, you were. I joined in. You're supposed to be the one to show them how to be good players. (laughs) That session, if I wasn't there, it would have been a TPK, because the one cleric in the party doesn't heal. Gotta love those clerics. Gotta love those clerics. <laughs> and also the one person who wanted to be a healer didn't want to be a cleric because they didn't want to be associated with any gods, even a fantasy god. So they <laughs> then got iffy when I said that wizards don't get healing. This is why you don't play with family, folks. Well, they can be a bard. They were using SRD content, so it's... It was only, only from the basic passes. rules because they refused to look up their own characters. So I had to run through every single character option bit by bit and build their sheets for them. I was not going through the full compendium. And before you end up doing that again at some point, and they go, I want to play Mystic. I want to play UA Ranger. I want to play <laughs> Artificer. But honestly, I told them after a hiatus, like, right, I can give you really cool characters if you want, as long as you look it up. Hey, there's these ones that have flying speed. There's these ones that have innate magic. You want to be the one to seduce the dragon? Bards. And they were just like, that sounds great. Can you do it for me? No. No. And then they complain that they don't get healed. Well. So my sorcerer has to waste his bonus action, which is the only thing he actually had on that turn, for other reasons, to use healing word. Constantly. Four turns in a row. (laughs) I was trying to get my psychic blade up. I have no attack spells other than my shadow blade, because he's a melee sorcerer. Couldn't summon the Shadow Blade because they kept going down. <laughs> At least this way I know that I know that my family has actually watched the podcast or not because they'll be coming into my inbox to rip the shit out of me in a few days. <laughs> <laughs> Next from the Discord and our last question of the day, Matt, the wonderful person who edited our last podcast, has asked, what's your favourite whale fact? Sperm whales are the largest tooth predator on Earth. Nice. Moby Dick and Monstro are the single most feared whales in fiction. 
narwhals and manatees. Uh, manatees aren't whales, but narwhals are. Number one, narwhals, the spike that comes out of their head is actually just a tooth that grew through the tops of their skulls, for one. And for two, they believe that they might actually be the origin of the myth of mermaids. These weird whale creatures with a spike out their head. Mermaids. Narwhals, narwhals, swimming in the ocean, causing the commotion. <laughs> the word whale actually derives from essentially something that means large sea fish and uh, there used to be the term whale fish but that became obsolete when people found out that they weren't fish (laughs) (laughs) does anyone have any more whale facts or are we going to move on i have one more which i think you'll both uh, two more really the hippopotamus is the closest living relative to the whale dang in the same way that humans and bananas are very, very close. Ah. <laughs> well, they're essentially massive sea cows, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. But also, whales are descended from land-living dinosaurs called artiodactyls. Yeah, they definitely... It just makes me think of pterodactyls. Like, <laughs> I don't get how that flap, flap, flap went into the chonkiest boys to ever chonk. They still have the vestiges of what are basically legs really yeah as part of their bone structure they have their flippers have basically evolved but they have similar bone structure to what is essentially legs you know that some humans are born with a vestigial tail i want one same i mean they're little useless things that just like they look gross as hell but also who doesn't want a tail exactly is that a tail in your butter or are you just happy to see me oh whales can get sunburns they are mammals yeah it's they spend that much time on the surface of the ocean that they develop blisters on their backs and for a very very long time we didn't know how they got them until a scientist basically just went sunburn (laughs) get some factor 50 on them I love when scientists like hyperanalyze something and then you take a step back and go, duh. Sometimes the obvious is the right answer. <laughs> yes, it is. But sometimes the inobvious is a lot of fun too. Right. Is there anything else anyone wants to talk about in this episode? If you have any questions or anything you'd like answered, <laughs> make sure to ask us in the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> or leave a comment on our YouTube page, which should be linked wherever the hell you found us. Or you're already there. We know you're ferociously typing about that one thing we said 30 minutes ago. (laughs) You may as well add a question on top of it. I think the only other thing that I'd like to say is that I'm looking forward to Tasha's. Mm. Yes. It got pushed back, didn't it? Yeah, it was meant to be released on the 15th, but now it's, what, the 2nd of December? December? Yeah. Mm. Gotta wait more. Good things come to those who wait. So, like, hopefully it's a good thing, but that will remain to be seen. I'm interested to see some of the things that are in there, at least. I'm interested to see the artwork. It looks bloody gorgeous. Mm. It does look good. And then obviously all the content, but you know. Yeah, I'm slowly collecting all of the source books, so basically the non-module stuff. And as soon as I have them of their standard print, I then want to collect the alternative covers, just because they're pretty. My technique to do so, and to avoid spending money, is to collect a boyfriend who collects all the source books. At least you know your place now. (laughs) 
I am the collected collector. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot cheaper. Actually, that sounds like an incredible collection to have. Just a collection of people who collect specific things. <laughs> that gives me idea for a character. <laughs> that, oh, that, no. That, that sounds potentially ethically difficult. Enchantment wizard crows. inquisitive rogue. Now collect crows. Crows love to collect shiny things and they will bring there it to you that. if you're their friend. I do like the idea of an enchantment wizard inquisitive rogue build that entirely focuses around basically getting people to do shit for you. And nobody ever really talks about how fucked up enchantment really is. Oh yeah. The There's a lot of talk about how necromancy's evil, but enchantment's horrific. Like uh, basically magic roofies after a certain point. Mm. Yeah. I just in my campaign, which I'm starting, I'm thinking of having like posters up in the pubs saying, "Watch out for the signs of enchantment magic." If you believe your friend has been enchanted, come to the bar and ask for Angela. Yeah, I think I remember reading. I think it was on just a Reddit post or something. It was necromancy is the low class nightmare. Enchantment is the high class nightmare because some commoner Barry doesn't really have to worry about being mind controlled out of all their belongings they don't have any but noble von parsonage they've got a lot to lose it's a difficult one though like say i mean like, i i can i can go up to a city guard and essentially get them to betray everything that they've sworn to protect and do and potentially get murdered for the fact that it looks like they've let me through a door or literally get fired from their job so that them and their children starve to death. Yeah, I mean, like, en enchantment is, it, it should be used with caution. Also things like mass suggestion, where you can literally make a group of people dance to the death. I think one of the things I heard is the reason that enchantment is seen as good and necromancy is seen as evil is because the enchantment was into their own PR team. Oh, that legislation you were going to put into bad enchantment. Might I suggest you just don't? <laughs> Can you ever trust one? And think... on the note of magical roofies. <laughs> I think that's all from us today. Thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you for Kieran and thank you, Alex, for being a part of this. Um, thank you to Rowan. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's a lot of fun. And to everyone watching, we'll probably two weeks from this episode, there'll be another one. We'll find out when we actually know who our editor is. See you. <laughs> Take care, everyone.